welcome back to the fourth and final episode of Project Phoenix. I'm Andrew Ortega, and I'll be starting off by telling you the story of the most destructive wildfire that the Centennial State, Colorado, has been afflicted by in recent years. The final episode in this series is titled, To Rise from the Ashes, and will begin with a brief introduction to an account of the recent Boulder County fires of 2021. To dig deeper into the underlying causes behind how a fire the scale of the 2021 Marshall Fire could spread at the rate it did, our co-host Elijah Tarak will be interviewing Elizabeth Cassano from CU Boulder's Cooperative Institute for Research and Environmental Sciences. In his interview, he will also be speaking with one of the roughly estimated 35,000 people that have been directly affected by the Marshall Fire. Of the 35,000 people who lived in areas that required evacuation at the time the fires began, more than 1,500 of those residents were students, faculty, and staff of the University of Colorado Boulder. To hear exactly what steps have been planned and taken so far by the university to help said CU community members, I'll be speaking with Sophia Saraj. Sophia is the Event and Community Partnerships Coordinator of CU Boulder's own Volunteer Resource Center, who will be able to give us a more updated look. Once finished with our respective interviews, Elijah and I will be taking the opportunity to meet back up in the studio and give some of our closing remarks on the incremental steps we see being taken by the university, as well as recapping everything we learned both in our interviews and from producing this episode overall. For CMDP 4810, this is To Rise From The Ashes. I'm Andrew Ortega, and stay with us. December 30th, 2021, just before 11.30 a.m. Thursday, emergency dispatchers alerted firefighters to a grass fire reported near Marshall Road and Colorado 93, south of Boulder. The hurricane-force winds buffeting Boulder County meant it already had been a busy morning, with fire crews racing to stop two other grass fires north of the city limits. But the new fire near Marshall Road would prove to be a different beast. Powerful winds pushed the flames east and it exploded within minutes, sending a column of smoke skyward as it burned across parched grasslands towards the suburban subdivisions of Superior. Tens of thousands of Boulder County residents fled that afternoon and evening as the entire town of Superior and its neighbor across US 36, the city of Louisville, were ordered to evacuate. The firestorm accelerated by vicious winds and drought conditions tore through Superior, jumped the turnpike, and burned into Louisville. By late Thursday, 
the Marshall Fire had burned 6,000 acres and damaged nearly 1,000 homes and businesses to become the most destructive wildfire in Colorado history. The flames leveled the hotel in Superior and scorched the roof out of the town's Target store. In Louisville, the wildfire blackened shops in the strip malls across McCaslin Boulevard. The version of events describing what has now become known as the most destructive wildfire in the history of Colorado would be published by the Denver Post after interviewing local witnesses in the area. Burning from December 30th, 2021 to January 1st, 2022, the Marshall Fire was finally extinguished thanks to both snowfall and the efforts of local and surrounding firefighting units in the Louisville and Superior areas. Since then, Boulder County would assess that the Marshall Fire alone destroyed over 1,000 homes, causing a roughly estimated $500 million in damages, with two people being reported missing and the partial remains of a third being found on Wednesday, January 6, 2022. But before we continue any further, let's just take a step back for a second and ask ourselves, just exactly how did we get here? I'm Liz Casano, the your uh, ATOC 1050 professor. Um, I am originally from Chicago, but I've lived in Colorado and for a bit more than 20 years, and I've worked at the university the entire time. I work at um, CERES, which is the Cooperative Institute for Research and Environmental Sciences. And um, up until this year, I've only been doing research and my focus is Arctic climate research. So it's the morning on the day before New Year's Eve. Where are you at this point? I was at home. It's, it's actually my birthday that day. <laughs> so oh, wow. I was taking the day off from work and just hanging out at home with my daughter. And uh, I looked out the window. It was maybe around 10 or 11. And you know how um, when the sun's setting and there's clouds in the sky, the, the, the light outside kind of looks kind of orangey. And I'm like, hmm, that's odd. I walked outside of my house and saw the smoke. And um, then my daughter and I drove to Davidson Mesa, which is in Louisville. It's on McCaslin. And we, we watched the fires there and the smoke. And it was just, you know, at, at that time, it was just still kind of far away. And we just thought, oh, it's a fire. It'll be put out. Everything's going to be fine. And then it quickly wasn't. And we were evacuated about, new, uh, I think it was around 2 o'clock. We were evacuated. What was going through your mind? Like, were were the emotions? What were you thinking about? Who were you thinking about? I, I still kind of have trouble kind of wrapping my brain around what happened. It's nothing like that had ever happened to me before. And when we were leaving my house, my daughter was actually, she was a rock star. She was very, okay, I got to get this together. And she was very, like, she was packed to go way before we needed to go. And um, when I was getting things together, I have a picture in my home office of my dad um and he passed away when i was in high school so um and i just had this picture of him and i loved this picture and i was like oh i should take this picture and i forgot you know just with the cast and everything and we had to get our cat and i don't know for some reason that just stuck in my head and i was really really sad about that which i would have been sad if we would have lost our obviously I would have lost our house but that was the one thing that was really going through my mind. Do you remember anything about the climate that day? What type of weather we were getting? 
Um, and I know it's super early. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's super early in the morning, so it's hard to tell, but yeah, just any of the specific details, temperature, wind patterns. So what was happening, um, was a mountain wave set up. And so there were very strong winds aloft directly from the West coming toward the, you know, the divide. And what happens in this situation is the air was pushed up over the mountains and then kind of rushed down the other side. And it's, you can think of it kind of like water in a river going over a boulder. And as that water goes over the boulder, it speeds up as it goes down and it hits the surface and comes back up because of all the smoke and debris that was in the air. Like you can actually see the wave. You can see the the wave in the atmosphere, which obviously normally you can't see. Those types of events are not uncommon for here. You know, we get these downsloping winds a lot. What was really extraordinary about that day was there were probably five or six hours of sustained 40 mile an hour winds. So just constant, that windy for that many hours is a really, really extraordinary event. What made this so susceptible to this was the climate leading up to the day because we had a pretty wet spring which caused a lot of growth and a lot of grasses and bushes and shrubbery and then around in june just precipitation just basically stopped and so all that growth just died and so there's a lot of fuel there was just so much so much to burn and the wind was able to carry you know like little embers you know that would cross the street and there's a lot more stuff to burn there it was moving at a rate of like a football field per second it was just a perfect storm of bad the day after it happened we got a big snowstorm and it was really cold i mean we need, I'm so glad it did snow because then it finally kind of stopped a lot of the fires, but um, we couldn't come home. Do you think I could ask you a little bit about what it was like talking to Elizabeth and like what you learned, especially since you, she is your professor? I really got to see her for who she really was and just the passion behind this event of what happened, not only for her being in the evacuation zone and somebody who had to evacuate with her family and left some mementos behind, but she also had the experience behind what was actually happening that day and what led up to it. And I think the number one thing I learned was this wasn't an event that just happened that day. It was a buildup over time through seasonal changes, just seasonal changes. That's something that happens everywhere. The fact that I got to learn about all that background while getting the human side of her was really eye-opening. So when you came back home, what did you see? Our immediate neighborhood, everything was fine. You walk a few blocks from my house and its entire neighborhoods are gone. And we know people that live there. My daughter goes to school with the kids there. We have good friends that live there. And it was, uh, 
very emotional. And I still, whenever I go down McCaslin, because it's where I live, it's, it's a main road. I have to drive through this all the time. And it's both sides of the road that the, how the entire neighborhood's just gone. It's, it's, and, you know, and there's still like burned out cars and see trampolines and, you know, like burned out, you know, just everything burned out. And so it's, uh, yeah, I mean, we're very, very fortunate that we didn't lose our home. Tell me a little bit about the rebuilding process. Are all the homes being rebuilt? Do people have temporary homes? And what role are the communities playing? I think that most of the homes are going to be rebuilt, but it's going to take a long time. They, the estimates I've heard is three to five years before everything is built back. An event like this requires human resilience. Do you feel that human resilience can rise from the ashes to create a stronger foundation and maybe even a symbol of hope within the communities that were affected? Yeah, I, I do. I mean, I, I have some people in my life that have lost their homes and Uh, We have to rebuild our house, but now we can build it exactly the way we want. You know, once the initial shock was over, just got to it, like, okay, this happened and we got to get together and, you know, and relied on their their community and their circle of friends. And it has been really nice to see that how many people step up to help. And can I, can I tell you a quick story about, please? it just really touched me. So basically the gas company had to go to every single person's house and physically turn on the gas. And it takes, I don't know, like 10 or 15 minutes. All the houses around us seem to have gotten gas back except for ours. <laughs> and um, my husband was like, oh, what's, what's going on? I'm like, you know, there, there's a, a guy down the block. Let me go talk to him. And the guy comes up to me. He's like, oh, there's this whole crew that just came here. They can help you. I'm like, oh, right on. So I got out of my car and I walk over and it's this big group of guys and I look at their trucks and it says Atlanta, like Atlanta Gas and Power. And I'm like, wait, are you guys from Georgia? And they said, yes, they drove all the way from Atlanta, Georgia to come help our local gas company turn on the gas. And I was just so touched by that. I mean, I was at you know, time, it was so emotional. So I'm like, oh my God, I'm frankly crying. And, I was just, they were so sweet. They came right over and turned back on our gas. And I mean, how wonderful is that? Yeah, that's, that's incredible. That's really amazing to hear. I think it's safe to say that there is hope. You have to have hope. Maybe I'm just being a Pollyanna, but I I just- No, not at all. Yeah, I just, and I mean, it's, it's easy for me to say that because I was fortunate in that I didn't lose my home. You know, maybe if I didn't, this conversation would be, my answer to that would be very different, but. I think it would be safe for me to say that as someone who wasn't even here and (laughs) got to really witness it, right? Like that's, this is me building a podcast, but the fact that someone who, who saw it firsthand, there was definitely fear there. I think at least from what I hear from you, from protecting your family, protecting mementos and yeah your livelihood. And I think that it, it really is powerful hearing that from you. And I think, uh, I think a lot of our listeners will probably 
agree. Well, thank you, Professor Cassano, for taking the time and coming on this podcast. Oh, you're welcome. This was a, this was a really great conversation and uh, good luck with your project. All right. Now we're going to sit here. And we're just going to chat. Just for a one quick second. <laughs> Elijah, how you doing, man? I'm doing good. You know what? I was thinking a lot about how Eric said our voices sound the same. That bugged me a little bit too, because I don't hear it. I don't hear I, it. Either. I don't hear it. I don't hear it either. And, and maybe should I go higher then? Because you're you're low. You're down here. And I don't know what that is. It's just like, <laughs> uh, I don't like this. Yeah. yeah. All right. That all right. Perfect. That's Test good. run. So to start, could I please get your name, uh, a little bit about yourself, and how you came to join the Volunteer Resource Center here at CU Boulder? Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Sophia Siraj. Um, I am originally from Colorado, um, Colorado Springs, and I actually am a CU Boulder alum. I studied gender studies and ethnic studies here at the university for my undergrad. And then how I came to the university um, as a staff member I was actually volunteering with Denver Public Library and Longmont Public Library because I was really passionate about kind of like informal education or experiential kind of learning and connecting people with opportunities to try new things, um, you know, expand their networks and their experiences. And I didn't predict that that would bring me back to higher ed, but somehow that kind of commitment to connecting folks with those community needs kind of flowed through and I actually got hired back at the university um, and I've been here for about four years now. You, you mentioned that like through your work this sort of like desire to help the community sort of bled through and it led you to where to where you are today so I just wanted to ask as a follow-up on that uh, have you always had an interest in like volunteer work or was it something that you were inspired to begin doing at some point in your life? <laughs> yeah that's a great question. Um, I don't know that I always connected it to volunteer work specifically, but I've always had an interest in, you know, strong community. And as I was trying to get a job, trying to get started in the library field, I was trying to volunteer just to like make connections and expand my skill set. And then I kind of realized like, oh, volunteering is kind of like a whole avenue to do what I was seeking <laughs> out to do anyways. So I think the more I've learned at the Volunteer Resource Center and working here, the more I've embraced you know, this idea that, you know, our actions are really have an impact for better, or for worse every day in our communities. And so how can we be intentional with those? And that's that's so vital, I would say, like in sort of facilitating this like volunteer resource like center experience. And uh, initially, when I reached out to the director of the VRC, uh, she immediately jumped to saying, oh, you know, Sophia would be the, the best person to to give you like the insight to that. So I wanted to just ask like your personal opinion, like as somebody who's affiliated with CU, um, what were some of your initial thoughts after hearing that the Boulder County fires affected 899 current students and uh, 771 faculty and staff members of the university? Um, yeah, I mean, that's a huge impact. Um, I actually live in Louisville, so I was evacuated from my home for a few days. Luckily, my home is fine, 
Um, but yeah, during those few days that I was evacuated, I kind of was like, okay, what are we going to need to do at work <laughs> to, <laughs> to help folks again, like, especially like, right. Like I feel very lucky and it, it's really heartbreaking. I think my initial thoughts were just like some disbelief <laughs> um, <laughs> just by the sheer like force of nature that kind of happened and how quickly it happened. Yeah. Thing about, I remember seeing the news, like a thousand homes. It's hard to even wrap your head around that. Like anyone else, I probably went through a few different cycles of feeling shock and disbelief. And then of course that urgency to kind of like help where I can. I think a lot of folks from what I've been hearing are like, okay, this happened. What can I do? How can I help? Where can I volunteer? And I think that's something we often see when there's a disaster or a large scale event like that. Since, since we're on the subject of what we were all thinking, like what can we do to sort of get out and help? Uh, could you tell me a little bit about some of the steps that the VRC has been taking in trying to aid these aforementioned students, faculty and staff? Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of what we have been doing is trying to use the platform that we have to really highlight where folks can get connected. So it's kind of a, a double-edged sword where it's like, right, like get folks the resources, information, and or like supplies that they need. And then also engage the folks who want to help, right? Because we provide resources for people who do want to volunteer. Very initially, like even when I was still evacuated, I was like working on my phone because my laptop was in my house. Um, wow, really? I was working on, on my phone with my um, director, Hannah, on and some of my other colleagues creating a spreadsheet of organizations that were asking for help and supplies who were kind of like the initial responders. And so we accumulated information um, and then, you know, got that information up on our website so that it was readily available. Also, our bus pantry on campus, um, we coordinated donations through our Amazon wish list and then opened the bus pantry to serve not only students who we usually serve, um, but also community members affected by the fire and staff members and faculty members. Um, so we kind of like increased the scope of that resource for folks. And and on top of that, really, just uh, to sort of end things off here, uh, since we're coming to a close, uh, I wanted to ask what you would recommend to those listening uh, who are feeling motivated to get out uh, from both the recent fires as well as uh, any future potential wildfires that might strike. Yeah, I think that is a great question. Um, I think the idea that I would really like to kind of highlight here is that anytime we're doing service work, um, and particularly in a time of crisis or like a major, you know, natural disaster, a fire, we want Absolutely. to make sure that we are um, understanding the need of the community and understanding that that's going to unravel and change over time. Um, in the initial impact, a lot of people will feel, you know, a sense of urgency to get involved. That's great. What I've learned from just, you know, working with CU Boulder's Office of Emergency Management is that it's really important that folks follow instructions from local leadership. So you don't want to put yourself in harm's way um, or, you know, drain resources for, for first responders or people who are really working that disaster zone. Of course. So I would say definitely um, love that people want to get involved. Right now, I would recommend you know, filling out the interest form on Colorado Responds website, that is the main organization kind of coordinating um, disaster relief in Colorado when things like this happen. So for future fires and that type of thing, um, I would get more involved in, again, Colorado Responds. They also will update their volunteer roles and needs as things change. So 
mm-hmm. something like the Marshall Fire, um, you know, we just went through that initial impact. And the reality is that there's going to continue to be shifting community needs around that for months to come and possibly years. Um, so I think sometimes when these things happen, there's a huge sense of urgency initially, and then it kind of drops off because, like you mentioned, the next thing can kind of happen. <laughs> um, and so I think it's just, right, like continuing to learn, get involved where we can, um, where our skills align and, you know, what the community needs, and then continue to reflect on that impact um, and ask questions and continue to learn more about what we can do. Um, one other recommendation in terms of like future forest fires, it might be um, a good idea to look into organizations that work around, um, you know, maintaining open spaces, like open space yeah. parks, potentially that if you want to get involved more in that kind of longer term, um, you know, prevention or just like caring for the environment or pieces that might be involved in, you know, another fire <laughs> um, in the future. Hopefully that is not something that happens anytime soon, but. Especially since we're, uh, we're still reeling and uh, coming in with, uh, with, with updated numbers from the damages. I, in my most recent research, I read somewhere around like f- more than 500 million in damages for uh, businesses and homes as well. And, you know, I think that the biggest takeaway really is to, cons- like you said, exactly continue looking at what the community needs in these recovery efforts and just trying to keep up with that. And uh, I really re- appreciate what the VRC has been doing so far and, and what I've been able to read online. And uh, Sophia, I really wanted to thank you for your time again today. That's uh, that, that's going to do it for our interview. Sophia, thank you so much for, uh, for joining us again. And uh, if there's any contact or information or like a location that people could go to the VRC just for more information, uh, if you could just plug that right now, that'd be fantastic. Yes, absolutely. So you're always welcome to visit our website, um, which is colorado.edu forward slash volunteer. Um, So we do have a current page up right now that specifically links to Colorado Responds and other organizations serving folks um, impacted by the fire. You can donate to the Buff Pantry. You can volunteer for our mobile food pantry or just find um, information about other ways to get involved around various community issues. If you want to visit us in person, we are in the UMC on the fourth floor in 458. So you're always welcome to pop in during our office hours. So we're vibing out here. It is 2.13 on a <laughs> Thursday. And 2.13. If, if we want to hit it up, let's uh, let's start it. Cool. All right, so we're back here in the studio. Elijah Genesis Torok talking with my partner, Andrew Ortega. How we doing, my man? Elijah, I got to be honest with you, man. It's been an experience working on this podcast together. I mean, uh, coming together, learning from Eric, really. Uh, it was a nice experience to just kind of get our hands dirty, like, in the first week or, like, yeah. two weeks of the, of the semester. Tell me about your background. I'm a senior currently, and uh, I'm... Uh, studying for my media production major, but uh, really, I come from Chicago, uh, Chicago, Illinois, and I'm like a, what you would call a city kid. So, like moving from like this sort of big old environment that really had little to no like greenery or like like vast like nature around the the city where I grew up, uh, coming to Boulder was like a, such a fresh experience, you know, because 
it's so much different. It's a small college town and there's so much beautiful nature around. And uh, that's one of the bigger things that I appreciated. You know, I, I don't get to go out much as a media production major, usually sitting at the desk all the time. But when I do get out, I just love the nature. You know, I love the, the, the scenery of Colorado. It's awesome. Yeah. Being an editor is just such a healthy lifestyle, right? <laughs> <laughs> you remember, guys, get up and stretch five minutes every hour. Yeah. But uh, Elijah, man, tell me a little bit about yourself. Where you come from? I never really know how to describe myself to people. Of course. Other than I'm a traveling storyteller with a passion for filmmaking. That's what I like. That's my baseline. (laughs) But it could change tomorrow, you know. I moved out here about four years ago to start my college journey, and I've just loved Colorado ever since. Yeah. Through this experience, through the interviews that we had, through the process of making this podcast— What excites you about the future? I think about the future in terms of not like a one set set thing, but I think in terms of like a whole set of possibilities. And I don't know. I think like in talking to in talking to people with the VRC and in talking to somebody who knows the 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 makeup behind these wildfires, I think that we're a bit more aware of the possibilities that could be. And I think that walking away from this, like looking at the future, I I think what's going to happen and how are we going to come together as a community to to fix it? You know, because I don't want to speak anything into reality, but it could be very bad, you know. In talking about wildfires, we could be talking about potential wildfires and talking about people that need equal housing opportunities. It's it's all about just looking at the situation and seeing how we can work through and persevere. So I think for the future, like and in, in everything we've talked about in this podcast series as a whole, it's all really looking to how we can persevere and how we can overcome together, not just as one, but like together and Yeah, but how how about you, man? I think what excites me about the future is that we are touching the surface on what it's like to promote hope and to promote the good. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of content put out there that is based on chaos and disaster and all the things that, like, distract us from actually being progressive human beings. And what excites me about this episode specifically that we're producing is that that's what it's all about. It's not about the doom and gloom. Like, we report on it. You got to be real. Yeah, we have to speak on what happened, of course. Like, that is, we're just reporting what happened, ultimately. These are facts. But what do we do with those facts? And what direction do we want to go in as far as what happens after? Human innovation shows that we are more than that. And we have this innate feeling to be resilient and to build back up, but not only just rebuild, rebuild stronger, rebuild better. I remember Elizabeth saying in my interview that some of her neighbors, like they were down because their house got burned down, Mm -hmm. but they were optimistic because now they can build their house in the way they've always wanted to. (laughs) Thank you.
right, man. Hey, thanks for coming in the studio with me today. Elijah, thank you for setting it up. And uh, audience, thank you for listening. Thanks for listening.